Please uh, turn with me to the first book of the Bible and the fourth chapter. And we'll read together Genesis 4 and the first seven verses. And as we've already been reminded uh, so rightly, um, this is the Word of God and it is for us, His people. So hear this passage, Genesis 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Let's pray together. Lord, um, we do thank you for your word and we do thank you uh, for fulfilling the promise that you would give your spirit as well. Uh, And now, Lord, uh, please grant that spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who hovered over the stuff of the creation and by word and spirit manufactured a creation of exquisite beauty. Oh, Lord, Word of God incarnate, by your spirit, would you hover over us and continue the work of forming and fashioning us into a thing of exquisite beauty, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you should have received a letter from me this last week, which let you know that we're taking a break from Romans. Uh, You may be sighing, thank heaven. Anything but Romans. Well, almost anything. Uh, We're taking a break from Romans for these next several weeks. And the reason that we're doing this uh, is so that we might examine some of what the Scriptures teach concerning the stewardship of our financial resources, our lives, our time, our gifts, Uh, We're we're really going to look over these next weeks, particularly at the matter of giving, what we refer to here in this church as tithes and offerings. And if you're here for the first time, I I have some, um, I guess, some um, words to offer to you that we don't do this often. (laughs) In fact, let me just say that there are several reasons Um, for why I suggested first to our elders and then interacted with our elders and deacons about this, several reasons for why we're doing this um, at at this time. 
Here's the first one. In the five plus years that I've been here as pastor, um, I have preached on the matter of stewardship, I think three times and maybe four, three sermons, maybe a fourth in the course of five years. And we have never in any systematic way talked together as a congregation about basic principles that shape how we think about our material resources as well as our, our, our gifts and the use of our time, all that God has entrusted to us. Um, this is the first time in, in the five years that I've been here, a little more than, than five years that Barb and I have been here, that we've done this. And so I just I want to say to you, if you're here for the first time or the third time or the second time, we don't harp on these things. We, we do try to keep our congregation informed. We have periodic town hall meetings where we update folks regarding uh, our finances and other things that are going on in the life of the church. I periodically communicate through a letter, particularly at the end of the year, admittedly, uh, about these things. But this is the first time in five years that we've looked at these things or will be looking at these things, again, in a somewhat systematic way. And here's the second reason for wanting to do this. Many of you have asked me about this. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. In fact, I was asked about this last week in the inquirer's class. Uh, and the questions uh, come kind of from different angles. But here is one of the questions that I've gotten repeatedly. Folks have said to me, I'm accustomed to pledges and to stewardship campaigns. I haven't seen anything like that or heard about anything like that in this church. What do you do here? How do you approach that? I mean, you won't see boxes with envelopes out on the table, you know, shortly before the first of the next year. You won't, you won't have uh, these, uh, these rather uncomfortable visits from elders and deacons wanting to know how much are you going to give this next year. We, we don't approach it that way. We never have, and we never will. And the reason that we don't approach it in that way uh, is because it's my conviction, and it's the conviction of our elders, that the scriptures provide us with all of the guidance we need in order to understand what our responsibility is with respect to our finances, with respect to everything that God has entrusted to us. Well, if the scriptures provide those guidelines, it seems to me that as a part of preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God, we need to talk about those things together as a congregation. Um, I've had someone approach me recently, sort of in connection with this, meaning a couple of months ago. uh, Someone approached me and said, "What, what is this business of tithing? Explain it to me. Explain it to me. It's in the bulletin every week, tithes and offerings. What is it? So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. It's interesting at the end of the conversation that I had with this particular member, he looked at me somewhat reluctantly, I think, somewhat hesitantly, and said, what about you? Does this apply to you as the pastor of this church? I've never had anyone ask me that question before. And I said to him, absolutely, absolutely, this has application to me. In some small way, I as your pastor want to emulate 
Jesus, my Savior, who never, I said this to the inquirer's class, who never asks me to do anything that he hasn't first done himself. I will not tell you anything in the course of these sermons that Barb and I have not, however imperfectly, sought to implement in our own lives. And I, I'm not saying that to you uh, to it's, you know, pin a badge on my chest or anything of the kind. I'm saying that to you simply because I want you to know that over the course of 40 years as a Christian, 35 years in pastoral ministry, I've had to wrestle with these things as a Christian before the face of my Savior and seek to implement these things again, however imperfectly, simply seeking to do what Jesus has done before me, which is to part not with some portion of what it is that he had, but with everything with everything, in order to secure my ultimate and eternal well-being. So the second reason for wanting to do this is in response to general questions from you about how we do this and the very specific question about tithing. What is that? So we'll talk about that. And here's the third thing. As I mentioned in the letter, the third main reason for wanting to do this Uh, and for wanting for us to think about these things, has to do with hopes and dreams. Has to do with an enlarged ministry. This, This, my friends, is about seeking by God's grace to extend our reach, to enlarge our tent in ministry here to us and among us. And one of the things that you will hear me say, which I believe very deeply and very firmly, is that ministry does occur here. Ministry occurs here, among us. Ministry and mission, if you will, is not just out there, though it is out there, and I want very much for us to extend our reach and enlarge our tent, if you will, but I want for us to understand that ministry, the ministry of the gospel, and supporting the ministry of the gospel is both here and then from here out into the world. And I just want, I just want to see us before God enabled to do more. That's what I long for. We talked about that in April, talked about some hopes and dreams. I referred to some of those things in the letter. And that really, above all of these other considerations, is what is driving my concern and my interest in having us think about these things together and be on the same page together. So for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to have a look at this. We're going to have an opportunity to elaborate and to explain and to interact. And all along the way, I beg you, if you have questions, please call me. Please come and see me. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's be in this together. So let's start. And let's start with what I absolutely believe is foundational to any form of giving, any understanding of giving, whether it has to do with my time or the use of my gifts, the talents that God has given me, or the giving of my material resources. Here is principle number one. It is the sermon title in the bulletin. The underlying foundational principle that shapes and molds and forms any understand of giving is this. Giving is gratitude for God's goodness. 
Giving is gratitude for God's goodness. Giving is a response of gratitude to God for his goodness to me. That's what you see in Genesis 4, verses 1 to 7. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And, and it is Abel's offering, as we see very clearly from the text, that is received by God, uh, that is considered acceptable by God. And there are three things here to, uh, to, to observe with respect to this matter of gratitude. The first is obvious. The first is obvious. The motivation for Abel's offering. Well, at least I hope it's obvious, or it will become obvious. The motivation for Abel's offering, the nature of Abel's offering, and the setting for Abel's offering. The motivation for it, the nature of it, and the setting for it. And this is an overarching principle that's going to guide us and shape how we think about these things across these next weeks. First, the motivation for Abel's offering. Again, very simply, it is a grateful heart. It is a grateful heart. The motivation for giving is a grateful heart. Let's have this story in its setting. Let's let's put Cain and Abel back into their setting in history. Uh, In Genesis 4, we are now on the other side of the fall. Uh, We are on the other side of the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, We're on the other side of what, what we now see as the terrible results of that sin, the horrific consequences for Adam and for Eve and now for their sons. That's the setting, that's the context in which we find ourselves. This first family is living with the effects, with the realities that are introduced by the disobedience of Adam. They are living with sin and death that have entered into the world. If you think back to Romans chapter 5, see you thought you were going to be out of Romans this morning, didn't you? You think back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Remember what Paul said as he set up this contrast between Jesus and Adam, between the first Adam and the last Adam, who is the Christ. And remember what he says, Romans 5, 12, about Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin, Just as sin came into the world and death through sin. If you remember back to the sermon that I preached, or sermons that I preached on Romans 5.12, you'll remember that the language that Paul employs there is language of violence. Uh, When Adam disobeyed, when Adam cast off God's rightful rule and reign, Adam opened the door to an assault upon everything that God had created. An assault. Not a kind of a silent, quiet slipping through the door. It is language of violence that the apostle uses. And sin and death have made an assault upon the world, entering into the world, attacking and destroying what God had created to reflect his goodness and his glory. That's the setting 
in which Adam and Eve find themselves. It is post-sin. It is the post-fall environment. It is a world, in fact, in which the conflict that is prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the conflict between the people of faith and the people of unbelief. It is a setting in which that very conflict is going to find its way into their family. The unbelieving son, Cain, will murder the believing son, Abel. Right out of the chute comes to expression the harsh, harsh realities of the effects of the fall manifesting themselves in the life of the first family. But here's the remarkable thing. This is stunning. See, this is, this, is, this is why I really do love what I get to do. I get to sit and think about these things. I get to read books about these things. Here is the stunning thing. In that setting, post-sin, post-fall, Here is Eve, who was complicit in that sin, who was complicit in that fall. Here is Eve crying out, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. With the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. Eve looks at her setting. Eve looks at the ravaging effects of the fall. And she cries out at the birth of Cain, God remains good. She cries out in praise. That's the effect of this. She cries out in praise to God regarding his goodness. What's she saying? She's saying basically this. God hasn't abandoned us. God hasn't withdrawn from us. God hasn't removed his blessing from me, Eve, the one who succumbed to the enticements of the serpent. God hasn't removed his blessing from me, the one who was complicit in that first sin. God has not removed his blessing from me, guilty as charged. But God has given me a son. She gives gladly all praise and thanks to God for what she has received even in this environment of brokenness where she is rightly charged as guilty. Do you see that? Do you see that? If you read the commentators, you'll see throughout the notations in uh, their comments on this passage, repeated references to evidences of the goodness, the goodness of God, even after the rebellion of the man and the woman. Isn't it striking that the first recorded words spoken by any person after God announces his judgments, the first recorded words spoken by any person are words of praise and thanksgiving with the help of the Lord, 
I have gotten a son. See, that simple statement is full of a recognition of God's goodness. ESV Study Bible has an interesting comment. Eve's reference to the Lord's help. And by the way, there are ESV Study Bibles back there if you want your own copy. Eve's reference to the Lord's help when Cain is born conveys a sense of optimism. Conveys a sense of optimism. The serpent may yet be overthrown by the offspring of the woman. See, what the ESV commentators are doing is connecting Eve's praise to God, acknowledgement of God's goodness, back to that promise that's made in Genesis 3.15 that from the seed of the woman, one particular descendant will come who will obliterate the rule and reign of the evil one. And Eve looks at this son, Cain, perhaps wondering, is this the one? Is this son the one who is promised? God hasn't abandoned us. God is good. He is going to bring forth from the seed of the woman one who will eventually eradicate evil, crush the head of the serpent, and restore things to the condition in which they were originally created. We know the rest of the story. We know that Cain isn't the one. We know that Abel isn't the one. But we do know the rest of the story. And we do know that God was faithful, remains faithful, was good, is good. It is Mary's son who effected that overthrow. Jesus, the promised seed, who vanquishes, who has vanquished, is vanquishing, and will vanquish the serpent. God is good. God is faithful. And Eve gives expression to that in her praise offered to God. Abel. Abel, then. Abel does the same thing. It begins with his mother. You ever wonder what kind of conversations went on in this family? You ever wonder about this? Cain and Abel were not around when Adam and Eve were created. They were not around before the fall. Look, these are real human beings who lived in a history that is connected to our history. And if we move back across all of those millennia of history, we get back on the other side of the fall to the place where Adam and Eve are created. They saw it on the other side of the fall. Don't you suppose this mom and dad sat with their kids around the dinner table and probably with tears in their eyes and grief in their hearts shared with their sons what it was like back there? How God, when He created the world, created it pulsating with life and with abundance. Those of you who have been in my Sunday school class, you know the overarching theme of the Scriptures. You know that it's the kingdom of God. You know that there are these five motifs that tie that theme together. 
To have a kingdom, you have to have a ruler. You've got to have some rules. You've got to have a place. You've got to have some citizens. You have to have some people. Those things you can have for any kingdom. What you don't have to have is a kingdom in which the blessings of the king flow to every citizen in the kingdom. Adam and Eve, is it hard to imagine them sitting around the breakfast table with their boys talking about what life was like on the other side? That God is a God who is supremely good and he creates a world that pulsates with life. He creates a world in which an apple tree doesn't just give birth to a single apple tree, but an apple tree bears apples, and in every every one of those apples are seeds that give birth to hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of apple trees. God is lavish in His goodness. He's not limited. He's not restricted. He dumps his blessing out upon the whole of the creation. And here is Abel after the creation and the fall, now living in that same shattered, torn world in which his mother lives. Here is Abel from the first fruits of the land bringing as an expression of gratitude to God an offering that is pleasing to the Lord. And what is he saying in that? God is still good. He's not abandoned His creation. He's poured out blessing upon me. And the phrase, the language that's translated in the ESV, uh, in verse 4, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Uh, the, The literal rendering of that is he brought the fat from the best. He brought the fat portions from the best of the first fruits from his flocks. What's that all about? See, in our culture, fat is bad. In that culture, fat is good. Read Isaiah 25. Wonderful, wonderful promise. Verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. Rich food full of marrow. Fatness. What is it that characterizes the kingdom of God in its consummate form, its consummate expression? Abundance. Lavish abundance. Read Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in fat food. That's what it is literally in the Hebrew. Delight yourself in fatness. No more lean meat. Marbled steaks. It's a metaphor. It's an illustration. So what does Abel do? 
Abel, again, who lives on the other side of the fall, who lives in this torn and plagued and desperately badly affected world. He sees the continued goodness of God. He is the beneficiary of the goodness of God. And in recognition of God's goodness, from the very first fruits of what he receives, he brings an offering of gratitude to God. It's the first thing that he does. What's the practical application of this? I don't mean to be silly. I don't mean to be silly, folks. Here's a practical application of this. Don't pay the other bills first. Don't pay the other bills first. God has lavished us with his blessing. He has poured out upon us richness. Not just materially. I mean, my goodness, we live in the most prosperous nation the world has ever seen. If kings five, six, eight hundred years ago could sit at the tables at which we sit, they would think we were the kings and they were the paupers. We are so richly blessed. And Abel, from his position on the other side of the fall, looked at the world in which he lived and saw in the continuing fruitfulness of the land, in the continuing fruitfulness of flocks and herds, he saw evidence of the goodness and faithfulness of God. And it compelled him and constrained him before he paid the other bills, if you will, to bring from the first fruits and from the fatness of the first fruits an offering that God found acceptable. That's the significance of Abel's offering. Again, across the centuries of the church, folks have asked the question rightly, why is it that Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's offering wasn't accepted? Many times people will suggest the reason that Abel's offering was uh, received and was accepted is because to bring a living animal and offer it to the Lord means sacrifice and it means that that thing has to die. And so it's because it was a bloody offering that it was acceptable. But really, that's not the reason. Both, both animal sacrifices and grain and vegetable offerings get codified in Old Testament law and both are acceptable in the sight of God. No, the reason that Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't purely and simply is because Abel's offering was an expression of gratitude to God. Gladness that flowed from his heart in recognition of God's goodness and providential care and provision in his life. Cain's offering was an afterthought. No sense of faith or childlike trust or gratitude connected to his offering. Abel's offering was accepted because Abel, like his mother before him, perhaps because they had had conversations, perhaps because Eve, I don't know, I recognize I'm speculating a bit, but look, these are real people living in real place in real time. Moms and dads talk to kids. Is it hard to imagine? 
Eve saying to her son Cain and then saying to her son Abel, Abel, you both are evidences of God's continued goodness and faithfulness even in the midst of this shattered world in which we find ourselves. And Abel got it, picked it up. And when he, when he saw that goodness, experienced that goodness, that lavish goodness coming from a good and faithful God, he, like his mother before him, gave expression to that goodness that gladness with this offering from the first fruits of his flocks. So what is the motivation for this? It is gratitude, always gratitude. Folks, if there were some serum, if there were some pill that I could inject into my own heart that would make my heart more grateful, I would take it. I would do it. See, this is always the order, my friends. You can constrain obedience by the law. You can keep people in check by the law. But let me tell you, there's only one thing that will grip and move and shape people in the way they live their their lives. It is the apprehension at the heart level of the goodness and faithfulness and grace of God. Barb has, Barb has little psalms all over our house, little verses, stuck up places, all on mirrors, you know, and little card holding things. She has Psalm 119, verse 32, in the kitchen, in the window right above the sink. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments. Because you have set my heart free. Why does anybody move in the direction of obedience? Why does anybody move in the direction of the commandments of God? Two reasons. You can constrain it by external force or you can experience the liberating power of the goodness of God. That sets the heart free to run gladly in the direction of God's commandments. That's what's going on with Abel. That's what was going on with Eve. So what is the motivation for giving? It is a glad heart. It is a heart that has been set free. Second thing, what's the nature of Abel's offering? We've already talked about this. It is the first and the best. It is the fattest of the first. It's the fattest of the first. Again, coming back to the idea of not paying the other bills first. What do I do? How do I think when I receive my paycheck? Do I, every time I receive my paycheck, say, I am paid? Not because an employer paid me. I am paid because God is faithful. Because God is good. And in recognition of that goodness, I return to him. The first from what he has given me. That's what Abel did. That's the nature of his gift. 
the first fruits, the fatness of the first fruits given in response to God's lavish goodness and providential provision. And then here's the third thing. What is the setting for Abel's offering? Motivation is gratitude. The nature of it is the first and the best. And what is the setting? The setting, frankly, is worship. Read the commentators. It's striking. Bruce Waltke, Alan Ross, Kyle and Dalich, a couple of dead German guys who wrote the standard commentary on the whole of the Old Testament, all of them recognize that for Abel, this was an act of worship. It was an act of worship for him to do this. They're uniform in it. You look at our bulletin. Every week you will see in our bulletin a really, really important phrase. The worship of God through tithes and offerings. We do it before the reading and preaching of the word of God here. That was the practice when I got here. My preference would be that we would worship God through the giving of tithes and offerings after the reading and preaching of the word of God. Because what do we hear about here? I hope, I pray. What is it that we're exposed to when we come here for worship week by week, every Sunday morning? What is it that I trust our hearts are enlarged by? A recognition of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy as these have been extended to us. See, I'd rather have the worship of God through the giving of tithes and offerings as a response to the word of God. We may end up doing it that next week. I may just in some, you know, sort of autocratic way, just declare that's the way we're going to do it from now on. See, it becomes a symbolic thing. It becomes an Abel-like thing. It becomes an Eve-like thing in the context of gathered worship. Uh, Folks, It's just never going to happen here that we're going to put a bucket at the back of the room so as to avoid offending people with summoning them to give their gifts, give their tithes and offerings as acts of worship. We're going to invite people to do this in the way that Abel did it and Eve did it as a response to God in the context of gathered public worship, a response to God for his goodness and his grace. All of us together. All of us together. That's what Abel did. That's what Eve did. So what is giving? It is a response. It is a response of gratitude to God for his goodness to me. Folks, whatever else we we talk about, whatever else it is that we see as we march our way through these passages of Scripture, looking next week at a remarkable passage from Exodus, and then in two weeks, looking at a passage from Malachi, a couple of passages actually, which do talk about tithing, this 
principle of the 10%. Moving into the New Testament, answering and dealing with the question that people inevitably raise. You know, in the New Testament, they never talk about tithing. No, they don't talk about tithing in the New Testament. What we do find in the New Testament is actually two examples. The widow who gave all she had. And the example of Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we, by virtue of his poverty, might become rich, Wherever it is, and that's where we're going over these next weeks, wherever it is that we go, what I want for me and what I want for us is for our hearts to be captured and gripped by God's continuing goodness, lavish goodness and faithfulness as we have experienced that goodness and faithfulness so that our giving becomes a response a response to what God has first given to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please do. Please do be at work. Lord, you know that these are tough things. Uh, You know that we need your spirit to make our hearts malleable and moldable so that as we receive these things, our hearts might be inflamed by them. That's what I pray for, for myself and for all of us. And so help us as we march our way through these things. Help us first to have grateful, grateful hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.